Hi, everyone, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I'm Jess Geyer. I'm one half of Wannabe Games, and I make role-playing games, and I'm here with my co-host, Craig Campbell. Hi, Craig. Hi, Jess. I'm Craig Campbell, and I'm the owner of Nerdburger Games, and I'm still making role-playing games, contrary to what I claimed last time. Right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, And we are, as always, here with a guest, repeat guest, back again, Starshine. Hello. Well, thanks Hi. for coming back. I'm more than welcome. Thank you for having me back. Uh, I am Starshine. I am a writer, and the courts have tried to stop me, but I'm still making role-playing games. <laughs> <laughs> I and I'm going to keep doing it until someone someone stops me. So that's maybe today's the day. Yeah, you're going to get a knock on the door, like in in the middle of this episode. Hey, <laughs> knock Just it a, off a in man, there. Men in suits put a bag on my head and drag me away. <laughs> Oh man! Well, that that would be the, a great start to a, a mystery to solve. It would, yeah, it, it would. That kind of reminds me of what our first topic is today for our GMing so topic. I'm gonna take that segue chance when I get it, and I'm always gonna point out when I do it. Craig, what's our <laughs> first topic? Uh, GMing mysteries. Uh, yeah, mysteries are. They can be tricky because it's in in a typical game session, you know, the GM is keeping a certain amount of information from the players, but a lot of that information is just like, well, we'll use it if we use it. If the players get to this, we'll get to it. If not, we'll get to it next time, or I'll just reuse it down the road, or we just won't use it and, you know, whatever, it's not the end of the world. Whereas with the mystery, there's usually like you're setting the players up with some clue, with some setup, some uh, scenario, and there's going to have to be something that plays out because to just abandon the thread of the mystery kind of defeats the whole purpose of like even going down that path a little bit. So going to talk a little bit about what you might do, things you might keep in mind um, when running a mystery and how to kind of keep it going, how to how to thread it, how to make it um, entertaining and, and engaging for the players and for yourself. So Starshine, what what experience do you have GMing mysteries? Quite a lot. Mysteries are something very close to my heart. One of my fondest memories is watching Agatha Christie movies with my mom, who is an Agatha Christie, just an expert. Like she's read every single book she's ever written. So I love mysteries. It's something I grew up around. It's a big thing for me. And I've run quite a lot of them and I've written mysteries. And very recently, one of my mystery stories has been taken off the internet for secret project reasons. So Ooh. it's something I'm in the middle of. So why is it taken off the internet? Because it, uh, it's a mystery. We, yeah. we, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to find the story before you can read it. It's hidden in a country house in a locked room. But I actually, uh, for mysteries, have something I think that's a point I'm going to come back to a lot during this conversation. And I think it's one of the crucial things when you talk about mysteries is establishing uh, the tone style of mystery early and sticking to it. Because mystery is an umbrella genre with a lot of subgenres inside it. Mm-hmm. So having those genres, they can often be non-compatible. So knowing your genre and tone will affect the type of clues and evidence players are looking for, how they'll find it, and how they'll interact with sort of antagonists. So to sort of draw three random sort of semi-genre famous mysteries out, uh, your English cozy mystery, your Agatha Christie's, your Poirot, your Marple. Clues are usually sort of big things like, ah, that clock's out of place. But most of the time, you're going to be finding information by talking to people, social engineering away. But when you get the villain at the end, they'll stand up and be like, yes, I did kill Lord Habersham and I'll do it again <laughs> if I had the chance. But they'll they'll sit there and take it. 
First they say, say Scooby-Doo, your sort of old school caper. The clues aren't really small things. They're got by sort of brunning around, looking at big things like, oh, here's a room full of monster suits or here's this <laughs> bit of machinery. And again, when you catch the villain, they'll be like, oh, I would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for you meddling kids. But they'll just sit there and wait for the police. Versus, say, your sort of Call of Cthulhu or your old sort of pulp adventure. You're obviously looking for smaller things. You have to handle them more carefully because you can't go running around an area with, if you're looking for blood because you're a step in it. But you can go crack a few skulls to get some information. <laughs> But villains, if you sort of get one, they're probably not going to go, well, I'll just go, I'll go quietly. They'll probably shoot you. Mm. <laughs> but if you have sort of that incompatibility, say your players come in trying to do a Scooby-Doo and you've written a noir mystery, things will go badly because, you know, Velma will try and drop a cage on someone and the guy will be like, well, I've got a gun. Yeah. <laughs> so knowing that early and deciding what is the style of mystery I'm doing and what is the tone is very important for deciding how your players will interact with the mystery going forward and really establishing that to them. These are the rules you can do. If you're playing legit cops, you can't go around accusing people at random, you'll get in trouble for it. But if you are playing like Little Miss Marple, you can sort of go into a, go into a room you shouldn't go into and then be like, oh, I didn't realise. Mm. Actually, while I'm here, can I talk to you about this person? And that's fine, yeah. that'll get you a result. Yeah, chain of evidence be damned. Yeah, right. as long as you as, as long as she figures it out, you're happy with your your you know, you, you're happy for Marple anyway. or or uh, uh, Jessica uh, Fletcher, the American the American version Jessica Fletcher, Defense. Jessica Fletcher, Murder She Wrote. Yeah. Where even yeah, even Columbo, you have that a lot. Where Columbo will do things mm -hmm. that are horribly illegal, but usually at the end of the mystery, the villain's like, "Well, yes, I you got me this time," and like <laughs> that's fine. We never have to deal with like how what happens to them after the mystery. They're just done with. In the same way that uh, if you're doing, like, obviously, mysteries aren't always murder mysteries, even though they should be, because murder mysteries are the best type of mysteries, let's be fair. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing that, you know, obviously, if you're doing, like, a tomb or an escape room mystery, establishing that, oh, you're fixing a mechanism with lots of big objects is very different to you're going to be going through an archive pouring over these papers, because, you know, in an escape room, if the player starts pulling off every book, you're going to be there for four, four or five hours and right. get nothing. Whereas if it is a mystery where you should really be going to the archives and doing a study, players might not realise that and run straight for the generator and start trying to fix it, even if the generator does nothing. So making sure it's very clear from the start, of like this is the rules we're working on, just helps cut out a lot of the issues you'll get late down the line when players try and, you know, when players try and do something you don't expect or when the players are stuck. It's a nice guiding force. I'm glad that you brought that up because when you do like set the tone for something too, you are directing them in that path. Like you, like you said, the players, we've said this before, they're not going to catch all the hints that you're dropping, especially if they're very subtle hints, everything will be very clear to you in your head. And even if you wrote it down, like in a, in a mystery novel setting, like the play, if you're a reader, your your reading is you're going everything's laid out you're not actually doing the searching there's a little bit less emotional investment um, as a player you're gonna miss big swatches of things and you don't have the perspective of a, a character who is not you uh, kind of looking through things and analyzing for you and eliminating those conclusions whereas 
you might be at a table with five other people who all have different conflicting things and they go off on a tangent down some strange rabbit hole and suddenly they are looking at the generator in the room when you were trying to direct their attention to the blood trail going off toward the kitchen instead that happens it happens every time i run a mystery every single time Red herrings are cool, but that's not yeah. a red herring. <laughs> I was I was just thinking about red herrings as kind of a corollary to tone is in that red herrings can be fun in limited quantities. Um and is it and as a GM perhaps give some thought to um being you know being careful about how far you let the players roll on the the red herring before you you quash it before you provide something that's going to put it at a dead end and be like okay so the players can recognize that's clearly a red herring. Um, which I think is mostly, you know, the most helpful thing in that is to not be beholden to your plot. And like if they come across, because you could easily develop this intricate web of stuff that's going on. And there's some red herrings in there, but there's no clear, like, this is obviously wrong point where, you know, and, and if the players start investigating something going the wrong direction, they could just keep going and going and going. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you might need to smack them over the head with like, okay, this is not getting you where you need to go, unless you can find a way to twist that back. I think it gets to a pertinent point. With herrings is to always give them some form of greater purpose, even if they don't fit into the main mystery. Uh, so you see it a lot in um, cozy novels do this a lot, where a red herring will have sort of some maybe tangential link to the plot, or just be a way of setting up something for the players, uh, to, something else to do, or sort of a different concept. Because then at least if they explore it, they do get something from it. So right. for instance, like that piece of dirt near the bookcase turns out to actually not be anything to do with the murder, but it does tell you there's a door there that you can use later to spy on someone. So it does, like, you do get some tangible benefit from investigating it, or while sort of talking about it, someone else might give you something else. Like, oh, this, this is strange because Lord Havisham never wore shoes in the house. He was always very against it. Right. You, <laughs> might go to, you might go to the Ben Govich and go, well, that's very odd because he has his boots still on. Body must have been moved. So give them a reward for exploring the red herring, for exploring yes. that option. And it, it might not link to the main mystery, but it has some benefit. The worst red herrings are the ones that are just there to clutter up your inventory. It's, think of it a lot like when you play like an, an open world RPG video game. And you get all the side quests that are just kill 10 buffalo. And it, you just get like, here's five gold. They just clutter up your inventory. Make sure that each one gives something or opens up at least a fun set piece for them to explore. I think really, if you ever want, it's weird to say this, but Clue, the movie Clue is a really good example of how you handle these red herrings. Because whichever ending you watch of that film, all the red herrings still open something up in some way. They lead to them finding a new route or going to another room and later finding something. It really is a masterpiece of writing that all the endings to Clue make actual sense. And all the other red herrings also make sense in their own way, but still keep pushing the plot forward. And that's what I would always consider. But yeah, I definitely recommend your point of being open because sometimes players will come up with the most ludicrous things in the world. Always they will. <laughs> but if they come up with something really good, you can always change what you're doing. Like if a player, if the players kit this sort of logical through fare that makes perfect sense, you can tweak things in the background to make that the truth. Players don't have to win every time because it'd be pointless having a mystery if you can't fail. 
But there is the option there to be like, this makes way more sense than what I was thinking. So in an off, you know, between session, I'm going to change a few things to make this fit. And also, just I think one of the key things of having sort of running a mystery game, have backups. Things can be duplicated across rooms and across areas, but have several versions of a clue leading to the same place. And then when one's found, just the rest, if you, they didn't see them, it never existed to them. That's it's huge. fine to be like, yeah, it's fine to say like, hmm, this, say, footprint is very, very important. So it can appear in the garden, it could appear in the office, it could appear in this, this hallway. They all tell you the same thing, that a man with boots came through here. But if you find the one in the hall, then call the other two. We just never mentioned them. They find the one in the garden. If they don't see the one in the hall, oh, it's here in the garden. And it's fine having these moving pieces, which is saying um, Locus, the horror game, does really well with its mysteries. Is Every sort of pre-written one gives you more clues than you'll ever possibly need. But basically every area has a clue that if the players want to look around there, here's something that points to this mystery. And if you don't use them, that's fine. But it's always good to have more than it is to have not enough. Yeah, it, it it really is. And even if you do have it, they have the footprint in one room and also in the other room, reiterating that it's important or giving the same clue, like, oh, not only did you find the footprints, but you found the boot, whatever is leading to the same conclusion. The more you can do that for the players, the, the better of a time they'll have because it might seem like, oh my gosh, that's so obvious to you as, again, you know the entire mystery. That's not fair not a mystery to you uh but don't shy away from that for sure i think another thing too with the red herrings though maybe you i think for sure at the end of a red herring after you investigate it you should always be either be able to eliminate an entire option or you know be directed to a real clue off the red herring um, but providing consequences when they do start exploring red herrings is another way to signal to your players that they're barking up the wrong tree. Yeah, you you go rifling through Lady Haversham's drawers and because you're suspecting her and, well, now she's going to be incredibly angry at you. You're going to be blocked off from the entire wing of the manor. And that's that's a problem, but it also kind of eliminates some options for you. You can even have Lady Haversham give a clearly watertight alibi at that point to eliminate her as the option, as, as the potential um potential murderer or on the other hand you could have the real murderer be like oh yes that actually is a really good theory that that could totally be used as my cover and really have the real murderer play up oh yeah yeah that's that's definitely it that's certainly it which will develop some suspicion on the part of the of the players too there's there's nothing better than giving somebody uh, giving your players an extremely suspicious person to doubt and disbelieve every word of because you can kind of lightly nudge them in the right directions with that person themselves. And generally, we're building on that, NPCs are a great tool for mysteries. If you read sort of any mystery novel, most times there'll be like an expert character who is sort of off on the side, whose job it usually is to either be a sounding board for the lead investigators or there to drop information. You see, in Scooby-Doo, they'll always be like the janitor who will tell them like, oh, this place has been closed for years or this place doesn't have this. Give the players that type of character who can be there for them to show things to and ask questions to because they can be used to cut things off or sort of remove red herrings when needed. 
because they also give that context, local context, which I think is very important in mysteries, because you don't know what's weird until you've been there, especially like like in so many tombs in like say video games. There's always lit torches. Does this mean someone's come here before me? <laughs> no, it's just it's just the setting. It's a rule of the setting. Deal with it because we don't have a lighting engine. But having like in a TTRPG an NPC who's there to be like. You be like, is that normal? And they're like, no, no, this is the torches here are always burned. It's been a thing for years. <laughs> really helps players know this is sort of what you're looking for, or to guide them to this is a place you might not have looked. And make them trustworthy. Yes. And keep them, them trustworthy. And then betray the players. <laughs> well, it's it's helpful to have the players know that there's there's in, in all this mystery and all the questions, there's there's act there's one thing they can rely on. Yes. Um, as much as possible. So if if that if that tr- if that trustworthy person feeds them incorrect information at some time, it's not necessarily because they are in cahoots with or are the villain. It's because they were just misinformed, and they can explain away why they were misinformed. So it becomes an, a, a, a you know they, they they're they're not the be all and end all. They're not going to be able to answer all the questions, but they're generally trustworthy. And I think Jess's comment about like, you know, you know rifling through um, Lady Haversham's uh, belongings and she cuts off that wing, the, the manor is a great example of like, it puts the kibosh on like messing around. Okay. We're not going to investigate her anymore, but now she's like, she's cut off the whole wing. Like what's going on in this wing? Is there something that is worth investigating? And it mm-hmm. g- so it gives, it gives the player something else to do where, you know, they hit the, they hit the dead end wall with that. You've kind of established that's a red herring. You don't need to go down that road anymore, but I've given you a clue. Um, or, or someone else gets murdered when they've been some bit of character development, some reveal about a character that becomes important for decision-making later. So they feel like they've learned something about a character and they don't necessarily have something to go on right at this moment about that character. But four scenes later, it's going to be very important to know that, um, you know, Reginald Haversham, the the son, can't swim. Um, and so that Reggie, becomes... he's, he's always terrible in gym class. <laughs> Damn it, Reggie. But, you know, and that plays into what happened in the pool. <laughs> so just but but just you know off the top of my head anyway um and i think the the comment that uh, you both kind of alluded to and are made um about having backups um one that I've, I've gotten bit by this and i've had to deal with it on the fly years and years ago there was an adventure that went like this where if you set up the the mystery and you've got your killer and you know they and all everything makes sense that it should be this person this is the killer and then the players nail that in like the first half hour and they figure out everything they need to, or enough to know that they they're sure that that's the killer that's not a terribly satisfying mystery sure it's a they they solved it it's a solution um but it was short it didn't have any twists and turns um they just kind of got lucky and that doesn't happen in novels and movies about mysteries you know the the investigator ends up having to go down a few different roads. So if you have like, even if you think, okay, well, this is who I think is going to be the killer, but have a reasonable explanation in your head for why it might be somebody else or why there might be a conspirator. Also remember, you can always play with the format because you can go the Columbo route if something like that happens. Where you know the killer at the start, the question is building your evidence to prove it. There's a lot of very good mystery novels where, where where the getting lucky does happen where the detective comes in knowing the culprit, but they obviously they're there. Well, you could never prove it, can you, Holmes? 
So then it encourages them to go back and be like, oh, I have to work out the mystery again. Sure, they're going to get all the, they're going to get the same sort of victory for being correct, but you can sort of encourage them to go back and build the evidence to make sure with some different, the stakes just different now. It's a case of, well, if they get off on this, we're not going to be able to try them again. So they're going to be home free. So we have to find a way of making sure they're imprisoned. Or you said, bringing up a conspirator or linking it to a different mystery. The, the old Conan Doyle out of how many times has some random crime been linked to Moriarty in some way? And that's a good reason to establish your tone beforehand because that way you know if doing that fits the tone um, in the type of game that you're playing. If you're playing, if you're running a game that's murder hobos and you're expecting the players to just, when, when they discover who the murderer is, they're going to haul them off and execute them themselves. If they're convinced, they don't need to spend the time proving it. But if you're playing like a highly investigative thing, if the characters are law enforcement or are, uh, you know, are in the employ of somebody who wants to know for sure and know all the details and know why this happened. And, and you know, they, they can't just go and meet out justice on their own. Um, then that, you know, definitely becomes uh, an option. But within that particular kind of style of mystery. You can also have like your B plots too, like your side mysteries, your side motivations with all these, hopefully a lot of very colorful characters that you're creating for your mystery. Cause that's really what makes a good mystery tick. You can't have your Sherlock Holmes and your, and your Dr. Watson in your game because your players are representing them instead. So you need to have the the suspects and the witnesses and everybody else. The whole else Haversham the, family. Yes, you need to have them be pretty fleshed out. <laughs> and all out. the servants. Exactly. None of whom can swim for some reason. <laughs> right. It's just a family made of lead. It's so weird. You wonder why they installed that pole in the backyard. It was asking for trouble. Ooh, well, it was here when we bought the place. <laughs> do, do you think about um, episodic? The episodic mm. mystery series exist. Uh, I mean, it's the format that made CSI into the now horribly boring juggernaut it is. <laughs> in that you can have each sort of session have a mystery with a solution, but they all build into a bigger mystery. You know, it's common in a lot of mystery anime as well. So sort of, uh, famously, Case Closed, Detective Conan, depending what region you're in, did that all the time. Like, each episode is its own little mystery, but there's this other sort of arcing mystery that links them all in some way. And mm -hmm. then these sort of, here's the people behind the entire thing. So you can do those little mysteries. One thing actually I want to bring up, and I think it's actually very important we talk about this, if you're going over a single session, heck, if you're going over a session that's more than an hour, notes. Both for you, yes. because you're not going to remember what colour shoes Lady Havisham was wearing <laughs> in two weeks' time. I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning, let alone whatever thing I said three weeks ago. Have notes, encourage the player to take notes and encourage a way, sort of encourage a structure for those notes. I love giving in-universe evidence to things. I think it's really good. And usually if you have that NPC, I will just have them keep notes for the players of what they found. And then sort of, in sort of an Agatha Christie, it'll be like a, an actual Scotland Yard detective who'll like hand over his notebook every session where he's like, oh, here's the clues you found last time, ma'am. And that's it. If you're not going to do that, just encourage the players to keep notes and try and get them to share them just so that everybody knows they're on the same page. And if you want to be very, very cheeky, make sure you can read those notes because <laughs> it's actually sometimes really useful to be able to see what the players have noted down in case there is a misunderstanding. Well, it could be handy to 
end your, if you're going to go over, like you said, to another session, to end the session with a brief, with a recap right there, like have a, have a discussion and like everybody can, because we've talked about this before, players will remember certain things as being important and other things as not, even though your thought about what they are is flipped. So they can offer up, well, we discovered this, 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 and this, and this, and they're like, and you're thinking, well, they also discovered this thing, but clearly I didn't drive the point home enough. So I'm going to mention that too, along with two other things so that I'm, you know, like you're all giving enough information. You've got a nice little list. You, you can, you can go to prepare for the next session with that list, knowing, okay, this is all the stuff that they, that they're keeping in mind. And the players for those types of players who like to do this have that, you know, codified list that they've thought about at the end of the session that they can now text at each other during the week and have their little metagame outside of the game discussion where, where they're, they're concocting theories and dis- and figuring out what their next avenue is rather than putting them in the position of having to come up with that avenue like right in the moment at the next game they can they can come in with a plan i think it's also very important to make sure with that so you say that text analysis is very important to make sure that everyone has access to it yeah because if i've played games where there is like one note taker like oh you're pointing a note taker but if that note taker doesn't turn up but all their notes physical you've got a problem because now no one has any notes and if that person is actually busy or indisposed you can't be calling them when they're doing a late shift to go, what what was that thing we found last time? <laughs> what color were Lady Her- Lady Haversham's shoes again? Yeah, you can't. So uh, making sure that everyone has a way of accessing it. That's why another reason I would say, if you're definitely if you're GMing, also have a way for you to access it, even if you're not going to use it to sort of profile your players and work out what they're into. Just so if players are gone, there's always a way of making sure the rest don't lose out on those clues, and you end up with a session where everyone's just sat there going, "Well, I have no idea what the hell happened." Last yeah. week, I can't remember. I said someone with a terrible memory. So it's like being able to just be go, cool, this is what we did last session. Here's that list we made. And I can just grab it in an instant. Like, this is cool. I know what I'm doing again now. I, I think for sure, like if you as the GM get the notes at the end of the session, you at least know when the, when the game runs again, you have the notes. The game won't be able to run without you. So if you have them or put them online, I've had great success with, like recording a whole session, not to polish it up or put it online or anything, but just for those notes to exist. And then also uploading like some, some notated notes. I think also should be care. Some, some player groups are more savvy than others. Some people really, really like mysteries have read a lot of mysteries. Um, You know, they're like really into the genre. Having them do the recap of clues is probably better than you doing the recap of clues because you are keyed in already to what is important. And uh, it's it's like if you've ever watched a, a TV show and at the beginning they say, here's what happened previously on. And then they they bring up some random detail that had never come up before. And you know, oh, it, they're going to talk yeah. about this this episode. Like if you're already getting clues. So, um, but- if you have a group of players that aren't so savvy about mysteries, you doing that recap can be another way to nudge them in the right direction, especially if they're if they're struggling. Yeah, so when you watch an anime and there's a character who's in the opening sequence continually, it's like, oh, they're totally innocent and normal. It's like, well, yes, you're in the opening. Yes, <laughs> I will say if you're dealing with players who exceptionally who you know aren't very mystery savvy, do make sure that you're. I'm going to come into this with design a lot more, but do make sure you're not sort of relying on mystery tropes then as heavily or not live them sort of work them out because 
while we all know the butler did it and the butler always did it, <laughs> someone who has no idea what mysteries are are probably going to be very confused when the butler starts joking about that. Yeah. If, if you are with sort of a friend group and you do have sort of a longer wind-up, obviously this isn't an option of like con games or sort of streams, do offer sort of players newer to the genre like a little watch list of things that are similar to what you're doing. Like if I run a mystery, I'll like say last time I ran a sort of English cozy style detective, I sent one player who hadn't really seen many mysteries, like an episode of Pie in the Sky, which is an old British mystery show. Like this is sort of where we're going for this sort of tone. And then, yeah, and it, actually that episode was quite important to the plot because like here's the same idea of like, because the, the, the episode I sent was the whole point was like, he accused the wrong person, but then later on he has to fix it. And that yeah. was sort of a similar idea. So th- giving that grounding, it's like, this is what we're going for. So you can kind of get a feel. It's very good if you have the time and the build-up. Obviously, certain games you can't do that because there's enough time. But if you can, always nice. And selecting the right game to run your mystery in is, I think, the number one thing, too. So not only does the game kind of set the tone, but also there are some games that are nearly impossible to run a mystery in. It's kind of hard to run a mystery in D&D when you can just talk to the dead person. I was about to say you could just say 5A. It's it's yeah, it's it's not a good system for running mysteries in. Uh, I think actually to come on to that point a little bit more, it's also important to note what mechanics are available in the game you're playing, because they all handle investigation slightly differently. And you need to sort of establish how investigation works in your setting. So DD, there is the investigation check. So if I stand in the room, roll investigation, does my character suddenly go, footprint, blood, footprint, blood, some hair on that? <laughs> And that's it. <laughs> or do or does the character have to go up to the hairbrush, roll investigation, and go, oh, there's some hair on this? Do they have to be sort of walk over to the building and roll? Oh, that's that's Eric's blood. Oh dear. Like how where do the skills come and how much do the players have to do before they can use their mechanics is an important thing to establish and establish early. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, if you're if one minute just rolling investigation in the room means you instantly sort of sonar into every clue versus you didn't investigate that hairbrush so now you've missed the most important clue. Players are going to be upset with you for good reason. So just know sort of how much they have to do to be able to use those checks and what checks are available to them. As you said, D&D murder mysteries become very easy when you just go speak to dead. Who killed you? Ah, good to know. Yeah. I mean, there are also games that are designed specifically to be a certain genre of murder mystery. I've written for the Baker Street role-playing game, which is Sherlock Holmes. There's, what's the new one that's about, like... Brindlewood Bay. Brindlewood Bay, thank you. It's a cozy style uh, mystery game. There's Cthulhu Confidential, which has the noir elements. There's the whole gumshoe system. There's so many, like, mechanic systems out there. There's no reason that you can't interrupt your 5e game and be like, oh, we are going to do a murder mystery. We're going to use these mechanics, though, instead, because I know you want the mystery, and I don't want you to just brute force it. I've seen people who do mysteries in other sessions by just getting those uh, murder mystery dinner party kits. Yes. You, which obviously don't have the mechanics element at all. That's entirely metagamed. It doesn't matter who your character is. It's the player who's doing the solving. But if you want to do that, that's an option. Obviously, you, you, know, you need to sort of prepare your players for that sudden change. But mm-hmm. if you want to do that, do that. But yeah, be aware of what mechanics your game has because sometimes some games' mechanics just don't work for certain mysteries. 
exactly. or don't have a way to get what you need. Yeah, well, but you don't want to make it harder on yourself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, always don't. That's the rule of any running any game. Don't make life harder than it needs to be, mm. unless you want particularly want to. But if you don't feel confident in doing that, actually, this is totally a side point. But I think it's the important thing to do when we talk about sort of making life hard for yourself. As you said, running mysteries is quite hard. It's one of it's probably one of the harder genres to DM. I would argue. I'd say it's the hardest. Like I would say, it's, it's, it's that or like classical tragedy gets a bit difficult because <laughs> players players always make puns. But if you're a new DM and you're doing this, and something goes very very wrong, don't be afraid to stop, take a moment, have a think, or even sometimes pull the curtain back and be like, "I've just realised I said." This thing earlier, I was totally wrong. I fucked up. And then have a think and work out where to go from there. It is not the end of the world. And if you don't feel confident to sort of on the fly tweak things to make that work, there is no harm in telling, being honest with your plans, like, yeah, no, I messed this up. And most, pretty much every group, any group you want to be playing with, will be like, yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. We stop for a week, we wait a bit, or we just... We get some errata and go from there. Players are yeah. more accepting than you think they are, and you're probably better than you think you are at running these things. Right. The play, the players are looking for a, a an enjoyable, memorable experience. And if rewinding and saying, no, actually, this is what you found because I misspoke when I was speaking about my web of deceit, then uh, you know, they'll they'll retcon that. They they're they're looking for they're looking for the engaging story. And if if what you did was a goof and it's going to kind of blow things up or make things very difficult or not as interesting. Um, they'll go along with it. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I say, I say it a lot, all, all GMs fuck up continually. Mm-hmm. You know, we all make mistakes, but just as you get, you do it more, you just get better at hiding those or sort of slowly integrating your fuck ups into the game as a whole. So don't feel that because you struggle a little bit with this, that you can't do it at all. You can, you just, sometimes you just have to be, accepting of your own failures and my god we all have failures oh there are even there are best-selling mystery novels that have huge plot holes so don't worry about oh, what you're doing <laughs> there are some there are some terrible mystery novels out there yeah yes. you are you're in a long speaking of trying not to fail and mechanics which we just briefly talked about a little bit here too we can shift gears and talk uh just talk about what Oh, let's talk about writing a mystery game. Designer point of view. Yes. How to do it. How can you make those beautiful, beautiful mechanics that a GM will be able to run their favorite mystery, do do all their Agatha Christie fantasies out there? I also love Agatha Christie. I was in two Agatha Christie plays and they were the time (laughs) of my life. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, it, it can, it can be kind of difficult because now you're taking basically all this GMing advice. How can you make that easier on the players? What can you do with your mechanics? So maybe it might be good to like, look at some of the mechanics right now that we know of games that do mysteries. Well, do you have any suggestions in mind? I mean, I, I did it quite literally with Capers Noir, which is a, you know, noir mystery um, kind of version of capers where um, I had uh, somebody who's more familiar with all of it, wrote it for me, but um, and freelanced on it, but basically looked at kind of how the gumshoe system 
does things and adapted that into the mechanics for capers with some unique twists um, just because of how capers works with cards and, and how your deck changes and that sort of thing. But, you know, I think at the heart, one, one of the, one of the ways that you can, you can deal with it is at the heart is to look at systems that deal with investigations. Thusly, you never hit a brick wall. You never make a check and have it provide you with nothing. Now, for some gamers, that will be a little anathema to the idea of a check. Like, I swing my sword, I roll my die, I roll a two, I miss. Nothing happens. But that that brings a mystery investigation to a screeching halt, especially if multiple players fail their check on the same thing or too many a few people fail checks in, in quick succession, even if they're on different things, because it takes all of the wind out of the player's sails. So... The, the most, you know, like a common way of dealing with it is if you're going to make, if you go looking for a clue, you're going to find something that something that is going to be at least mildly useful. You make the check to determine if it's more useful or if you find more clues or a better clue or some detail about the clue that will help you make decisions down the road. But at the very least, you know, you know, just going to the the forties milieu of Capers Noir, it's like you're investigating the crime scene, and you find a matchbook that's been left behind, and it's for a particular club. So, even if you fail the check, you give the players the matchbook, so they know they can go to the club and they can go and they can observe and see what's going on there and meet people there and figure out, you know, that, that that's going to take them somewhere. But if they if they make if they succeed at the check, they not only find the matchbook, but they find discarded cigarettes, and there's a lot of them. So somebody waited here for a long time. And if they made a, a better check or a higher target number, they find a lot of cigarettes and they have lipstick on them. So that helps the players narrow things even more. There was somebody, there was somebody who wears lipstick here, was here, here a long time, may or not be the murderer, but was around for a long time at this, this crime scene. Even better check, the cigarette butts are dry. They're not from yesterday because there was rain last night. They're from today. Um, you know, that you can build all that sort of stuff out and better the check is or whatever. If there's currency that the characters, the players can spend that gives them like maybe they make the check and they also have like a cool point that they can spend. That's like, I'm going to spend that now to get more now that I made the check. You can do that sort of thing and build that into whatever your game mechanic is. One of the things that Baker Street did that I really like is very similar. So there are different rounds. The first like the first round people roll to find clues and you might not find every single clue during that first check. And then you roll some deduction and you try to eliminate every clue. Sorry. Every clue has three leads on it. So let's say you do find cigarette butts and there are three potential leads and one of those leads is correct. So then you, they go and they do another round of, of checks and they get to eliminate a certain amount of leads from all of their clues the players use a little bit of their own personal intuition and personal deduction. So some outside skill, some meta skill to ask the GM, is this one correct? Is this one correct? Is this one correct? And yes or no, what is it going to be? And then they have the option to go and either roll again. But what happens is that there's a clock and every time something bad happens, the, the villains, you know, 
evil schemes go further. Maybe at the first one, some of the mechanics are tweaked and it makes it harder for you to do things later on or or someone else gets murdered or even the villain gets away. Although you can still solve the mystery, you just don't get to capture them. But you always have the option to mechanically continue to find things. Uh, I think that that made the game work really well because no one is no one is Sherlock. Uh, that that is a that is a wild fantasy to be. It would be great, <laughs> uh, but with all of the things happening in a role playing game, no one can be Sherlock and and completely to do something that might be incredibly wacky, like a snake that drinks milk. <laughs> I think what you two just did there was actually another really good example. I think that when you're designing a mystery game, include that in the book. Like, show the GM, the potential GM, how a small adventure or a small series of clues will work in your system, because it's mu- describing something in the abstract, especially in mysteries, can get a bit complicated. Mm-hmm. So that's why I always think, especially for mystery games, you'd have a good, solid example adventure, or if not an example adventure, at least some small like narrative of, here's, here's this sort of our prototypical detective, here's our prototypical case, Here's how you'd sort of go about this. Here's how these mechanics link together. Because I think one of the important things with mysteries is you have to sort of work backwards a little bit. As a writer, you sort of start with the reveal and what happened and then go back to how it starts. So showing the DM very early on, like here's how you would go through the step-by-step so you can then see how these mechanics link together rather than having a situation in sort of four sessions where, oh, by the way, the player should you should have told the players this in your adventure earlier because they'll need it now. Give that example. I, I really love I'm sorry, Basketball's Locus, because I've been working on it again, but uh, how it does its example mystery. It gives you a really solid example mystery about a boat, but where it shows you sort of everything you can do with the system in one nice package. It's not too big, it's not too small, but it totally shows if you want to build a mystery in this system, here's how you'll go about doing it. Here's uh, it's a very simple idea and how to and sort of leads you to how the how will the players work this out? Well, they'll go from here to here, they'll realize the crack in the boat is symbolic and then go fix the crack in the boat and hopefully not die horribly because it's a horror game. They'll die horribly. I, I think for sure, having at least, I mean, if not some robust examples, but having several example mysteries for your mystery game is incredibly helpful to anybody who wants to run the game. Because they don't want to spend all of this time creating a mystery and they don't know if they're going to like the mechanics and they don't know if they're going to do it correctly. Uh, a lot of people, like when I am buying modules, even for 5e, the time that I do that is when I'm trying to find a mystery because it's so hard to think of it. I, I would much rather buy a game that at least gets me the start and or like I have an introductory one. So I'm, I don't feel like I'm wasting my time. I think that that is a, a spectacular piece of advice. Plus, it helps you kind of kick the tires on your own mechanics while you're writing the game. Like, is this actually working? And having a full mystery to play test if you're making a mystery game instead of just like bits and pieces of mechanics, I think is paramount. And if, if you want a good cheat for this, and I've done this a lot of times, is turn something you already know from that genre into an adventure. So let's say you are doing sort of your English cozy mystery. I will take a sort of Poirot novel and go, if Poirot is our player character, how would he get from here to here using the mechanics I'm working on? And sometimes you get a bit like, well, this wouldn't make any sense. No player, this wouldn't work mechanically. 
So you can go back and tweak that. And it's a way of sort of having an example adventure that fits your genre without having one. Obviously, you haven't written a game yet. Right. See, if I if I try and recreate this film, this book, this whatever, would it work? And you might go, no, this my mechanics incentivize doing something totally different and then change them. And then when you get to making that myth, that's an example, it will work really well. One thing I do think with mysteries, and this sort of, again, crosses boundaries a bit to both topics, is it's very important to show it to people outside of your circle. Mm. Because it's very hard to know what knowledge is common and what knowledge isn't. So things that make sense to you might not make sense to other people. And if you've ever been in sort of the escape room circle, you'll hear delightful horror stories of, uh, oh, the whole mystery was trying to find this decoder ring for this code we put on the wall. But the guy who came in just happens to know that cipher off the top of my head. So I just read it. Like, so you'll funny. never know. I, I, I did see one where they wrote it in, I think, Greek, which went well until the group from the Greek Cultural Centre came for an away oh. day. <laughs> Two minutes. Oh, well. Yeah, that, that would door. spoil okay. Yeah, but you... And obviously the people who made that had no idea. They didn't think that through. But you might do the same with your mechanics. You might write something that makes perfect sense to you, but involves knowledge that just isn't common. And with a mystery, that mechanics... In a lot of sort of other genres, you can get around that okay. The GM can work on the fly. It doesn't work in a mystery. So showing it to people outside your circle, if you can hire proofreaders, hire proofreaders. If not, try and find your friend who has the most different approach to you and show it to them and go, does this make sense? Which is one of my best editors. Knows nothing about tabletop games. And she's amazing because I can show her something and go, I can't go, oh, this is, this is like Call of Cthulhu. Right. If she, if she goes, this makes no sense. There is no way around it. It makes no sense. I have to go and rewrite it. That's similar to something that we said last week uh, with our previous episode, that if you make the knowing of something the point, then you you can run into that problem. Either they won't know it or they will know it. And that can either lead to a, a very quick solution or a brick wall, which like Craig said, we don't want a brick wall in our mystery. The brick wall ends the mystery. Your the game Agatha, is over. The old Agatha Christie teapot, teacup problem. Every Ag Christie fan, sort of whenever they see tea on the desk, will go, oh, it's probably poison because that was her thing. <laughs> if, you don't know Christ- if you don't know Agatha Christie, you'll be like, why are people so fixated on this cup of tea? <laughs> thought, a thought, too, is there, the, one of the, the things that, peop- that some people will say um, is that, well, if you're always going to find a clue, it means that ultimately you're going to solve the mystery. And it's just a question of how quickly you do it or whatever, right? It's just a question of whether you make the checks to do it or whether you just stumble through is, is you could give some thought. And this is something that applies to GMing. If you're, you know, kind of outlining how you're going to run a mystery, but you can bake it into the game system as well and talk about it, particularly in GM advice, which is levels of success within the, uh, for the overall mystery, not, not just levels of success for the clues, but levels of success for the mystery. If you're, tracking a, a, a repeat killer, a serial killer, you know, do you succeed enough that you catch the killer before they get to their next victim? Or do you, do you fail a handful of times, which causes everything to be drawn out? And the complication that goes with that failure is that they kill another person. Or do you succeed and discover that that's the killer, but they got away? Or do you succeed and discover that that's the killer and you actually catch them? or the authorities catch them or whatever. And so you can build into the mechanics that like, if it's going to be a, let's, you know, and I'm not saying that this is a 
a way to do a mystery necessarily, but just as an example, you've got a, if it's a five clue mystery, there's going to be five clues that are going to, you need five pieces of information to deduce what you need to, to figure out. If you fail at two of them um, and succeed at three, then you're, you're, you're okay. You catch the killer. But if you fail at three of them, then the killer strikes again before you get the chance to to stop them. Um, and you can do that just by having, you know, it, the great thing about investigation is um, in some cases anyway, not always, it depends on the, the scene that you're in, but sometimes an investigation, especially if it's like a research kind of oriented investigation, you can decide, you decide how long it takes. Like you can say, well, you, you, you failed, a, you, you failed your check. So you discover this thing, but it takes you four hours of searching. And in those four hours, that murderer is out there doing stuff and you're not catching up to them at this point. Um, so you can build that kind of into everything too. Yeah. Having, having some mechanics for consequences of either like taking the time to do something or pursuing a red herring, uh, it, again, takes the onus off of the GM to design these things because they're designed, they're built in right there with the mechanics. So you can say to the GM, okay, when they do pursue a red herring, here are some, let's take some powered by the apocalypse terms. Here's some hard moves you can make against them, or here's a soft move you can make and, and giving them the the go ahead, the here's here's the thing you can do. Go go murder somebody else. Go ahead. Go poison their tea, whatever it is. And then you gotta have a hobby. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's also important, two things that we've touched on there that I kind of want to build on is that one, GM notes are so are so good in mystery games to sort of oh, yeah. both I would always put them in as sort of a friendly thing of like, here's what this is aimed for, here's where, why this is a thing and why you should keep it in mind. And don't be afraid sometimes to have a note that is just pay attention to this because this is going to save your butt several times. Or a note that's like, if all goes wrong, here's the glass you're going to break. And it <laughs> is this hard move. So don't be afraid to, to have that and to accept and to acknowledge in game text that things can go wrong. It's actually a personal bugbear of mine. A lot of games don't acknowledge that. They sort of presume perfect play. It's like, no, as a, as a creator, it's fine to say, sometimes your players may be weird and do something odd. If if that happens, here is your solution. And also to account for different play styles, different groups. I, th I think it might be Pathfinder that has that list that categorizes players into sort of five types. The ones who want to role play, the ones who, and then there's the one who just, who's there because their friends are there and they just want to do it. Do have options for those different types of players. It doesn't have to be one per player, but if your group, you know, if you do have that person who's here because their friends are here and maybe are not the mystery savvy person, do have an option for that player, which is, hey, if as players you can't meta-solve the logic puzzle, here is how you can use a role to get around that. Or here is when things totally grind to a halt, here's how you get things moving again. So I will sometimes, for when I run a mystery game, of have, hey, if the players are stuck, you can have them have this role that will give them something, maybe a clue, like uh, for the mystery I'm working currently, there is a list of just generic clues that go anywhere. And it's like, if the players are stuck, have them roll on the, have roll, then this table is something that will happen or be there. Be that the NPC you found earlier comes out of the crate they've been hiding in. It's like, oh, I didn't know, yeah. Or you suddenly realize there's a footprint you hadn't spotted earlier. Or in one of the cases, a gas fire explodes. Just to be like, go over here. Just have that option for all those different types of play. Because while, you know, people like us, 
we'll, we'll love sort of plotting out all the different motives on our big pinboard with string. <laughs> if you have that player who's only here because my friends play this game and, they, and I was outvoted four to one on this mystery game, give them an option if they can't work anything out to here's a mechanic you can do where you use the mechanic and you get something for it. Or like you get a connection made for you, like with the cigarettes in the rain. For that player, having them have to sort of work out that, oh, the cigarettes are dry, so they got to be from today, might be a leap. So do have that final option. Then go, roll on it, ask, ask NBC or go, who can mention the rain and slowly help push them. I think it's just really useful and makes the game much more accessible to different groups, especially we talked about a lot about sort of cultural coding, especially if you have mixed culture groups. It gives always gives you that back door to get the game back on some rails and get it moving again. First of all, I love like the not assuming perfect play. You're you're incredibly right about that. So many games assume perfect play on the part of the players and that kind of leaves the GM in a hard spot if there is a GM. I think that that's, that's brilliant to have a, a, in case of emergency, break glass mechanic. I think too, uh, t- something you can do to solve the, you have different players, different play styles, is make sure that there are different uh, playbooks or classes or something like that for the players, different specialties mechanics wise. So you don't have the one person like me. If I'm in a, an escape room, I'm the one who wants to do everything. I want to solve the mystery, me. But I'm I'm not in this scenario. I'm, I'm playing with other people. I need to share. So what can you do for a player like me? Well, you can give me a specialty. That way I can still feel very special when I, when I break that out. And then someone else with the specialty, maybe they're the talker. And they can do something like, oh, when you have a very long conversation with with a witness or with the suspect, you can, during that conversation, you can learn about something that they're lying about or or discover another clue while while you're talking to them. Like give give specialties that work for those different play play styles. Maybe you have the person who really hates the mystery games is really more like the beat em up person. Well, there there's often a bruiser style character yes, in inspector these... Jap kind yes. of from scotland yard i will say the thing you mentioned about um everyone having a specialty is also part of escape room design it's called four corners design uh in the idea being that at the start of an escape room the players each player should be able to break off from the main group and go to a corner and have the start of something there so in that first exciting moment everyone gets everyone gets a toy basically obviously they're going to come back to the middle and discuss things and have to work together. But in that fun first moment, everyone gets to have a fun <laughs> discovery or gets to find the start of a clue. And it's a really good way of designing these escape rooms. And I would say that in mysteries as well. In that first, in that first little bit, everyone gets a thing. Everyone gets a shiny thing. They can sort of go, I'm the one who found this. Yes. Be it a piece of evidence, be it a conversation, be it seeing someone going out. And yeah, and if you have the bruiser, be it expect a Jap futilely shooting his gun at the murderer missing. <laughs> and that can still be really fun. I I the idea of everyone splitting up in the escape room. I've I've played a lot of escape rooms. Well a lot. I've played like several. And that has helped me a lot kind of share the burden 
of <laughs> bird. I, I, I can share better. Uh, it makes me share my toys. It just reminds me of the It's Always Sunny episode on escape rooms. <laughs> They're literally in separate rooms and cannot solve the mystery because they will not work together. Uh, forcing them, having a mechanic to force them to work together can can maybe be something to look into if you're trying to design a mystery. It's, it's definitely something to consider. I, I always think with... Um... There's a lot of different ways you could take the mechanics for a mystery game. And that's both the great thing about them and the terrible thing about them is that you can really go in some odd directions. The door system for um, New World of Darkness is a really good mystery system, but I would argue that it's a bit it's a bit esoteric so, <laughs> as a take on it. But you can do that. But if you're doing the playbooks, I would recommend do make sure you don't over-specialise people mm-hmm. because uh, that gets to the changeling problem where you have a power that only works on Tuesdays when it's raining. And it's like, well, it hasn't been Tuesday. It hasn't been raining for the last 10 sessions. So make sure that everyone at least can do the base together. So you don't have one player who gets locked out later. At the very least, everybody should be able to look at a clue and go, that's a clue. Yes. And go from there. Yes. I think also the thing to note as well with mysteries, which is unusual, is the approach to metagaming is going to be very different in that you are relying on players' lodge in players' own brains a lot more. So you can be a bit lax with mechanics, but they still need to have those very hard defines. So it degrees of success is great because there is still that room for the player to sort of make connections and improvise things together. Whereas if you do sort of the hard investigate pass fail, that's gonna be that makes sense in a combat game where you want to move quickly through the investigation, but doesn't make sense here because there's no room there for the players to sort of improvise. But of course that makes sense for D&D because the entire point is it's not you investigating, it's your character. Where in a mystery game, you're the one, even though you are playing a character, you're still the one doing the investigation. And I find myself thinking a little bit too, this is this is something that could have been GMing oriented. So it's something to keep in mind there. But it's also, uh, you know, for the purposes of design and particularly for the purposes of discussion, in it, like a GM advice section. And and I think it comes back to like a lot of advice is good because this, as we've talked about, is one of the most difficult genres of games to GM. So having uh, that advice in there is good. But um, what about the twist? The big shift at the end that kind of sets everybody on their ear. And you know, like ideally you want the characters to discover that thing or be at least be involved in the moment that the big shift takes place. Like their 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 whole path led them to this point, but now there's this big thing that happens that re, you know, kind of changes where they were going with everything. And I've heard writers and critics both talk about this. Um, and it's something that's I've tried to keep in mind whenever I approach this is that the best twists, the some of the most satisfying twists are unexpected, but inevitable. A twist that is completely out of left field and just doesn't make sense. And you're just saying that, oh, it's this way because I said it's this way is, is not a great twist because it doesn't pay off for what the players have learned thus far um, or for the, you know, what the overall story is. Um, have we all seen seven? Yes. The movie Seven? No, but I know what it's about. Okay. The twist at the end of Seven, everybody. Spoiler on, spoiler on a 25-year-old movie. Oh, come on. I just told you I haven't seen it. We've, <laughs> <laughs> we've, 
that was your plan for the afternoon. The killer, the killer, <laughs> the killer is killing people, and he's using the seven deadly sins as his wrap, as his wrap around to that. And we get to the end of the story. We're damn near at the end of the story, and there's still two de- uh, two deadly sins that haven't been addressed. Um, and we learned, of course, this is the part, Jess. I'm sure you've heard about what's in, what's in the box. That it is the head of the wife of the. Uh, one of the uh, lead one of the lead characters brad pitt's character's wife and that's the twist right like he killed the wife oh my god but really what it is is he in that moment declares that he is envy he's the sixth deadly sin because he envied the detective's life in his perfect life with his perfect wife and then he entreats the the main character and this is the point where if this was player character you know players playing characters the character the player has to make a choice he entreats Brad Pitt character to become wrath and kill him thus completing the sixth murder and to doom himself to prison finishing up the seventh deadly sin um and that's where the story goes and it fits the whole arc of the story it's this wild thing out of nowhere, but it makes perfect sense into what this guy's master plan was because he had to complete the seven deadly sins in order for him to be a great villain. If he had been stopped with two to go completely, he, it might be satisfying as like, oh, they caught the killer, but it wouldn't be, it wouldn't have paid off that big arc of the seven deadly sins. And, you know, uh, just something to keep in mind. Um, look at you can you can usually it's like if you know a movie or a, or a book or something that has a great twist a twist that you've always thought was really great you can probably apply that to it it's unexpected but it's inevitable it you makes perfect sense that that happened you just didn't think of it or you the one key early. piece of information the one key piece of information that you needed what didn't happen until the end right there and so the and even better is like the players get that piece of information moments before the twist happens so they have a chance to think about it they have a chance to prepare themselves um, and solve that moment. And then you reveal, oh, yep, you are right. And here we are. Hard left turn, weirdness happens. Um, and they have this great reveal. Well, the thing to know about Seven is it actually didn't do very well critically when it came out nope. for a reason. And that is that the twist, while good, doesn't make sense it dep- depending where you're from. Yeah. Because the Seven Deadly Sins, uh, so the iconography they use is a very sort of Midwestern, I would argue. Well, I'm not great in America, but it feels very Midwestern in how they handle it, especially stuff like Wrath. It's in some sects of Christianity, Wrath isn't the name of that sin. Right. They, uh, so uh, a lot of international critics didn't get it. So that's why it's very important to have options and be very aware of your cultural biases when you write these mysteries. Because again, to some, you know, you have a group of sort of Christians playing this game, they probably pick up on the different sins except then you have sort of, if your friends are all sort of devout for another religion, they'll be there like, I have no idea why this guy is covering an ox. What's going on? <laughs> uh, is, it, is this about ox love? You have yeah. to be very careful and give those options. And I would argue if you're writing a mystery sort of adventure for other people, sometimes just include a list of these cultural things. Have a note at the very start being like, so, hey, GMs, this is based on the seven deadly sins. If your Here group, they are. Yeah, if your group knows this, you can go a bit easy on it. But here's some ways to really hammer it home. Should you know one of your should your group not be as au fait with the iconography? Same like with a few games based on tarot. Like famously, everyone always oh tarot is death. Uh, death is bad. The death card. It's not. It's meant to be. In tarot. No, death is a change. <laughs> but so many films misuse that. Now, yeah. depending on what group you have, 
they may look at that differently and get the totally wrong idea about it. So having a note to be like, if your group is an okay with this, then have the person go, oh, no, it actually means great change and just lead it off to them. I, I have literally seen that. I've seen characters on TV shows literally do exactly that. They explained it to the audience because they knew that, that yeah. too many of the audience are going to look at that card and say, oh, it's like this Grim Reaper card and it's the word death. So it means like somebody dies and it doesn't. Yeah. So, so they, they literally like they hang a lampshade on it. And so, you know, you as a GM or, you know, talking about uh, as a designer, giving advice to GMs, um, you sometimes do need to hang a lampshade on, on that sort of oh, thing yeah. and make sure everybody's on the same page. I mean, every, every horror Absolutely. film and any sort of supernatural being will always, will always have the old doddery researcher who'll come along and be like, ah, yes, this is, this is how you kill a vampire <laughs> in this movie. Yes, you, you show it twilight and it will die of shame. <laughs> but I think with a twist, uh, the part thing I do, and most mystery writers do this, is again work backwards. And you can do. I would always recommend this mechanics. Start with those end mechanics. How does this resolve? How will players resolve this? Then go back. How will they get to this thread that leads to resolve? How will they get to that thread that leads to that sort of twist thread? There's a Neil Gaiman quote which I'm going to butcher because I cannot remember it. But he always jokes, the first draft is of yourself. The second draft is where you make it look like you knew what you were doing during the first draft. <laughs> because that's, I've had, I've, hex things I'm writing now. There are bits where I came up with something late in the development, added it in, then have gone back to seed it earlier in the story. It's like, actually, no, it's really good that this character starts calling this one person this one name. It's really good foreshadowing. Pity I didn't foreshadow it. No, I just go back and add a bit of foreshadowing. Yeah. <laughs> you can do that when you're doing your mechanics. You can think, this is what I want this moment to be. Then work and work out how you get there via those mechanics. And then just make sure, I think it's the big thing we're working out mystery games, tone must be consistent, but do make sure you're not sort of locking a GM in to one specific story. Mm -hmm. Like if your game has a mechanic for like, oh, butler sneaking behind people with a pipe, that's probably <laughs> really good for your clue game but it kind of locks the GM to doing a game where there's a butler sneaking around with a pipe. Now, you maybe if you really like butlers with pipes, and <laughs> that's going to be or, You're writing my, the game called Butlers with Pipes. I totally want to play that game. I was I was going the exact same place. We need a mini game called Butlers with Pipes. Only if on the cover is like a warning contains butlers and pipes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And the setup is always, the setup is always that the butler did it with a pipe. Um, and then it just becomes a question of how you can prove that it wasn't. The role, <laughs> and we, and we'll there, turn all the to, we'll turn all the tropes on their ear. There has to be a role where if you get really badly, the role is just this is not a pipe, and you all just become artists. <laughs> well, there I think that there's so much that we could continue to dig into. This has been a very fun conversation. Starshine, thank you again for joining us thank today. You for having me. And um, we will know that when a, a murder eventually happens, to call you. For yes, your unless, excellent unless I unless I did it, in which case don't call me. Unless you're are you a butler? Uh, no comment. Okay, well, good mm. good 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 instinct there. My, <laughs> lawyer, my lawyer is nudging me off camera like don't you fucking dare. No. Starshine, tell us about uh, about what you have to plug. Yeah, um, you can find me on the internet in several places. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Starshine Scrib. Uh, on my itch, starshinescribbles.itch.io, and I have a website now where if you like me talking about game design, I actually do break down the design behind several of my games. That is starshinescribbles.com. And if you go to my itch, you'll find my last game at the time of writing, which is Pumpkin Spice Millennial Princesses, a game about <laughs> finding love in the gig economy. And probably, I, again, I feel like I can say this 
quite confidently it is the only TTRPG available where sipping a pumpkin spice latte is a core mechanic. <laughs> Tis the season. Tis the season indeed. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Jaska, or you can find my games at wannabegames.com on DriveThru or uh, on DriveThru RPG or on itch.io under the same name, Wannabe Games. And uh, you know where all my crap is. Uh, the important point is that next Tuesday, Tuesday after you hear this, uh, September 27th, is the launch of Code Warriors on Kickstarter. Um, this is this one's kind of a big deal, y'all. This this game has been in, in development for almost four years. It went completely down one path of mechanics. And uh, I said, nope, that's not working. And then came back to it later and took it down a different, a completely different system. Um, but it's a pretty slick little game and it's got some spectacular artwork and some wonderful people worked on it with me. So check out Code Warriors on Kickstarter as of Tuesday. Woohoo. Also, his website is nerdburgergames.com. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you to our opening and closing theme song, which is Avil by Steph Sachs, released under Creative Commons. Thank you, Steph Sachs. And thank all of you for listening. And we will see you back here next time. I made a question mark because it's mystery. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Put your pipe away, Starshine. Put that pipe. Put that pipe down. <laughs> <laughs>